At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hi, everyone. My name is Alan Messick, and this is episode six of Best in Show, the podcast dedicated to the rabbit and KB industry. And I'm joined today, as always, with my lovely co-host, Bryony Smith. Bryony, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm a little frazzled. I don't know if you've flown much recently, but I flew back to California today and flying is such a pain right now. It is. It's getting worse and worse, it feels like, (laughs) even though we keep hearing that COVID is going away. I stood in a line, a TSA pre-check line, like the one you just normally sail through. Mm -hmm. I stood in line. It was like a mile long back to baggage claim just to get out of Fresno of all places. And then Today, uh, the airports are a mess. And yeah, anyway, so uh, I am really glad to be on this podcast. This is like my therapy. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a nice uh, wind down. It's a Sunday evening here. So yeah. Yes, it is. It was a nice warm day here today. Hopefully it was warming up where, where you are in the Midwest as well. It is. The sun is shining and does are lifting. So you can't ask for much more in late February. <laughs> if you are a rabbit breeder, you cannot ask for much more in late February. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, so we're going to roll into our podcast today, and we're going to talk about um, this time in, and we picked uh, 2005 for this podcast episode, episode six. So as always, I'm going to jump into some events that were going on in the world or in our country in 2005. So actually, 2005 was not such a great year when it came to natural disasters. It was actually the year that Hurricane Katrina hit the, uh, the central part and central south part of our country, especially Louisiana. But on the positive side, the top songs were We Belong Together by Mariah Carey, um, Hollaback Girl by Gwen Stefani. I think you <laughs> must know that one, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> and the third one of was Let Me Love You by Mario. And I, do you remember that one? I Vaguely. It sounds familiar. It sounds like it sounds maybe familiar. it was a ballad or something. It, it kind of was. I, I have to admit that I didn't recognize it either. So before I got on the podcast, I'm like, Alexa... Can you play the song, please? And uh, I was like, oh, yeah, I know that song. So if you heard it, you would know it. Top three TV shows of 2005 in the spring. Anyway, that was American Idol on Tuesday. And American Idol actually on Wednesday was number two. And CSI was number three. Were you an American Idol fan back then? You know, I watched one season. It was a season with Fantasia. Um, but after that, that, it's like, you know, you just got too into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it consumed two nights of the week. 
Yeah, yeah. And I decided, eh, well, after this is done, I'm done. I kind of did the same thing with like The Bachelorette and Big Brother, like one season. And I'm like, eh, it's just a little too much. <laughs> well, and you get into it and you're like, all right, I'm, I'm too deep in now. I can't give up. But then maybe next time I'm going to take a <laughs> take a hiatus. Right, exactly. All right. So enough about the world and what was going on in uh, 2005 on that side. What's what happened in uh, 2005 on the Rabbit and KB side in the ARBA? So I pulled out this time the January-February 2005 domestic rabbits. This would have been just after the 2004 convention in Providence, Rhode Island. In Glenn Carr's executive director's report, he talks about um, the revised standard of perfection. The changes were approved for the 2006-2010 standard at the 2004 ARBA board meeting. So, you know, we talked about before, this is a long process. Um, he talked about a proposal to allow the American satin rabbit breeders to incorporate the new mini satin breed upon its acceptance, which was still a year out, on a five-year conditional basis, which is really interesting. Um, I think, you know, when the mini Rex came in, the Rex Club decided not to incorporate them into their specialty club. So the National Mini Rex Rabbit Club was established. The satin breeders went the other way and incorporated the mini satin breed into the ASRBA. And uh, I mean, apparently it's worked out. Uh, they've been there over 15 years. And that, I think, really allows people, because a lot of people have gone back and forth. You know, they had satins or they raised mini satins, maybe because you know their kids came along or they got a little bit older. They just wanted a smaller animal to feed. And that still allowed them to go to the same national shows, be part of the same club with part of the same people and facilitate really smooth transition between the two breeds. So that's, you know, interesting and, you know, something to to look at as we get more possible mini breeds coming through yeah i remember that back then it was a it was really heated because yeah you have a lot of passionate people raising satins and a lot of those same people were were duly raising mini satins at the same time Uh and it was it was very heated for a while about within the satin community about whether or not there was going to be two different clubs or whether they would combine and collaborate in a joint organization ultimately as you said the uh, American Satin Rabbit Breeders Association uh, decided to keep mini satins there, and, and they still are today as, as one parent organization. Yeah, and it, it seems to be a success. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are still actually raising both breeds um, together, unlike Mini Rex and Rex, where I think, I mean, I wasn't around when, when Mini Rex were accepted, but it seemed like for, a, for just a short period of time, there were people still raising both, but a lot of them transferred over to, to Mini Rex. And it seems like now still people are, veteran satin breeders are still, raising both. Yeah, which is really interesting. And it's good for both breeds because you have people getting into mini satins who have that experience, you know, with that fur type, with certain aspects of the breed that can really jump in and kickstart the progress of the breed. That's such a great point. So on in the report, um, Glenn had announced his retirement, which was going to be effective December 31st, 2006. He decided to give two years notice as opposed to the typical two weeks to give (laughs) the association time to um, conduct a good search for his replacement. Uh, New judges and registrars. New judges were Marion Ely from Ohio, who got a Nevelandorf specialty license. Karen Fisher from New York and Melissa McGee from California both got their rabbit judges licenses. Um, we had several new registrars, and some of them have gone on to be judges and are still active judges. Those include Sarah Clevenger from Washington, Jim Effling from South Dakota, Ashley Garza from California, and April Wright from Alaska. They're all um, now very active judges. 
Um, at the 2004 ARBA convention, Mary Louise Cowan was inducted to the ARBA Hall of Fame. Um, she was very active raising Netherland Dwarfs, Holland Lops, American Fuzzy Lops, uh, Mini Rex, as well as being a great benefactor for the ARBA Research and Development Fund and leading that committee for many years. Yeah, probably the most philanthropic um, ARBA member in history. She was, oh, uh, absolutely. She was a force. Remember her, the raffles, the R&D raffles back in the day? Yes. At the conventions, my gosh, they were so full of great stuff and the rabbits were awesome. And I remember I got my first pair of lilacs in, in one of those R&D raffles that Mary Louise, Mary Louise was uh, overseeing at a convention. I think it was, gosh, I think it was 2000 in Columbus. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it was an honor to donate rabbits then too. I mean, yes, you, it was. Yeah. They were good. Yes, they were. Um, and the vice president's message, Randy Shoemaker was our vice president at the time. Uh, it says in bold, the ARBA board approved youth showmanship format is here. That's something that had been, you know, worked on for a long time. There was a push to incorporate showmanship into the youth contests at convention, as there are several different formats across the country, but they took a lot of feedback from around the country to come back with a format that was going to be universal and used for everyone. And I think um, they've incorporated that into the youngest segment of the youth contest um, as opposed to judging. I can't believe it's been 16 years since the standardized showmanship format, because I think at the time, I still I still say this, I, I guess I'm getting a little outdated, but I'm like, this is one of the best things that Airbnb has ever done. And that was 16 years ago. But my God, I mean, you, you've raised or you've judged so much up, I'm sure, in a lot of places. And before that 05, and maybe even now, you, f- you find a lot of inconsistency unless that showmanship standard, that standardized showmanship rubric is being followed. And, and finally, a judge can be from anywhere in the country, travel anywhere and, and judge consistently. And it's the same for the kids. Like they can go to a convention, have a judge that's from a different part of the country, and you're all judged on the same standard. So I think it was super smart. I love it. And, uh, and if I don't know, do you judge today where where that standardized showmanship format is not used? Um, the only place it's not used, at least where I judge, is I do some county fairs in Kansas. We have 105 counties in Kansas. So some of them have a small number of youth and they maybe don't even have a leader who's a member of the ARBA or familiar with our shows. And for those, um, I tend to use sometimes a basic form that we used in Kansas or a more complex form that we used in Kansas, just because that form spells out all of the steps. You know, if you don't really have a place to start, that form tells you exactly what you need to do at, for every single step of showmanship. So sometimes I either use that or give them to them as a study guide. But I think most are moving toward that standardized showmanship. And I'm glad because coming from Kansas, we do a one-on-one demonstration style showmanship. So you walk up to the judge with your rabbit, you explain everything as you're going through, you tell them what they're checking for, you pose your rabbit up, you tell a little bit about the breed. And the first time I judged showmanship out of state, and it would be, you know, group style showmanship where nobody speaks, I was really lost as a judge um, because it's not what I'm used to. And we weren't always given... Uh, a good, you know, clear like rubric or format of how to judge showmanship. It seemed like a lot of times it was more about handling than actual knowledge. Um, I remember once years ago when parents flipped out at a fair because I asked kids some questions out of the standard and that was not done. You only ask questions out of the 4-H book, which of course I had no access to. Um, But I think it's really helpful. Um, it, It really gives us the opportunity to judge more uniformly across the country and gives the kids an opportunity to compete in that no matter where they're from. A hundred percent. And um, I don't know about you, but if I bump into those fairs, that those county fairs, oftentimes, as you described, they're smaller, maybe more remote, and they don't even know about the standardized 
showmanship for him. And I, I oftentimes will either have a copy with me or be like, hey, guys, look at this, Airbnb.net. Go to youth and click on forms, and, and the showmanship forms are there both for Rabbit and KV. And they're like, they're blown away. They're like, wow, this is really cool. And I'm like, yeah, because sometimes you go to these places and the kids are great. They know what they've been taught, but there's still a little more they could know. And if they had that that format, they could really go, they could go nationally and then and then do very well. So um, I found those smaller county fairs to be very receptive oftentimes today if they don't know about the form um, to maybe adopting it and working on it later on. So, um, but I, as a, as a whole, I, I think, like you said, most, most places are using the Airbase standardized showmanship format. So it's great. Yeah, absolutely. So moving on um, after the 2004 Airbnb convention, we had some newly accepted varieties beginning in, they were able to show beginning in February of 2005. Those are blue eyed white mini wrecks. Otter Holland Lop and the Tan American KV. There's oh, a listing of that was that was that was big. Yeah, it was. Um, there's a listing of the winners from the ARBA convention. Best in show was won by a Silver Martin owned by Ron and Judy Riddle. Other group winners included an English Angora owned by Linda Rosal of Washington, um, Florida White owned by Ray and Margie Brewer of South Carolina, and a Lilac owned by Bob and Donna Cook from Wisconsin. That was a big year too. We we keep bumping into these um, group wins that were won by breeds that we don't typically see winning groups. And that when the Lilac won in 04, that was we were all like, "Wow, go Lilac!" Right? Yeah, yeah, that was really exciting. Um, I actually missed this convention. It's the last convention I missed. Um, I had just moved back to Kansas, and I just got a new job, and I couldn't make it. And I remember being just so bummed all week. It was horrible. It was like being left out of the party for a week. It was terrible. Oh my gosh! And Rhode Island, um, of all places, like <laughs> we're like a rabbit show in Rhode Island, and it's going to be the convention. That was, was pretty cool. Yeah, sorry you missed that one. There was an advertisement for the second annual Judges Training Academy, which was going to be held May 20th through the 22nd in Bloomington. These were held at the ARBA headquarters. Um, our old headquarters building in Bloomington had a large space in the back that was made for like a warehouse space. They set up judging tables and people who were interested in becoming a judge could go learn there and from some of the most experienced judges. Did you ever attend? Um, actually, I was at the one in 2006. Um, they had not begun with the time that I got my license, um, although some newly licensed judges did attend. Um, so I know they were held for at least three years. I was at the one in 2006. Uh, my mom and I were actually up to judge a show in that area. And we stopped by the ARB office so she could do some work in the library. And they were starting up the Judges Academy. So it was you know, kind of a whirlwind of activity there. But it was really interesting. It was neat. Uh, it was a great idea. It's something I hope that we can get back to. That'd be so cool. I was there in 05. There was so much energy. I mean, all the icons were in the room and I was a registrar. So I wasn't even close to thinking about a judge's license at the time. Um, and it was, it was just, it was moving. Like I will never forget the things I learned because you got to like work under these icons. And I remember Glenn Carr worked one-on-one with me on, on posing uh, an American chinchilla. And he, and he, he, he just has a way about his hands and uh, I'll never forget it. And Glenn is a left-handed judge. You are too, aren't you? <laughs> I'm a, I write right-handed, but I pose left-handed, which is bizarre. What are you? I'm the same way. And that I really? remember we worked well when you were working for your judge's license because yes. I'm the same way. There are a few of us. I think Glenn is one. Um, Bruce Ormsby is one. We do everything else right-handed, but we judge right left-handed. And I can't quite figure that out, except I know Bruce and I are both left-eyed. I don't know about the rest of you. What does that um, mean? You have a dominant eye as in, um, in addition this to a dominant hand. Hmm, this is so, me? Yeah. Um, so it, it kind of comes into play, like when I was shooting archery as a kid, 
um, we figured out, oh, she's left eyed. She's not right eyed. That's why she has trouble when you tell her to close her left eye. Um, I'm squinting right now and I'm realizing that I can I can close my right eye and look out my left eye. You are so onto this. Yeah. Crazy. I had no idea. Well, when I wake up in the morning, I'm a blurry eye. It's like my left eye that I crank open. <laughs> <laughs> so but, funny. Yeah. Um, there were some breeder profiles in this magazine. Um, one was a guy I remember who was just so sweet and such a wonderful encourager of youth and new judges. His name was Bill Lorenz. He lived in Illinois. Um, I remember he was the president of a club up there and hired me for one of my first shows after I got my judge's license. Um, he raised Rex. His family also raised Dutch. So I met them through the National Dutch Show. Um, his daughter, Christine, still raises rabbits. She lives in Missouri. And I just saw a Facebook post today that yesterday she won her first best in show with a gray Dutch. So cool. Yeah. So another, you know, fun little family connection in this hobby. Totally. People stick around, don't they? That they do. Awesome. Any more from history? Um, I think that's it for today. And that's a good segue into our guest. It so is. And I'm so excited today about our special guest. Both you and I know him very well. Um, and he comes from Vienna, Missouri, and that is None other than, of course, Gene Gillespie. Um, and of course, with this segment three, which we do every podcast, our objective is to inspire, entertain, and educate. And um, <laughs> if you know Gene, you know that entertaining is is part of the game with him. And he is such a fun guy to be around. Uh, Gene's been raising and showing rabbits for more than 50 years, including 42 years as a licensed ARBA judge. He holds both a rabbit and judge, a rabbit and KB judge's license. Uh, nearly a dozen rabbit breeds have been in his barn including cavey breeds too. He comes from a family of three generations of rabbit and cavey breeders. His wife, Sue, is also a judge, and he shares the passion with their daughter, Brenda, and grandson, Tyler. And of course, aside from rabbits, he has other stuff too, like call ducks and paint miniature horses. Uh, Gene, welcome to Best in Show, the podcast dedicated to rabbit and cavies. Well, good hello this evening. It's great to have you on here. Thanks for taking time out of your your Sunday night to to record this podcast. Yeah, you were talking about Bill, Bill Lorenz's club up there that Brandy talked about judging. That was the Tidbar Club, which was rabbits spelled backwards. Oh my gosh, no way. That, that reminds yeah, me of sure um, was. R- Randy Clear's rabbitry when he was living full-time in Alaska. It was all I saw rabbitry, which is Wasilla, his hometown, spelled backwards. <laughs> so that's funny that uh, that, that rabbit club was uh, kind of named in the same fashion. Yep, sure was. So you've been around for 50 years. Not to, we're not like, you know, going to call your age or anything. But Gene, how did you get started <laughs> in the in the rabbit and KV industry? Well, we were raising a few meat rabbits at home on the farm. We had a about a 200-acre farm, which my son owns now. Uh, we, I, in 1966, I obtained some uh, Palominos at the Missouri State Fair from the Morrissey family. I turned around and got uh, two pair of Flemish Giants at that time. I raised from those for a good while. Then we, I had a few Checker Giants. Uh, when I actually got my driver's license could drive at 18, I joined the 4-H club because on our farm, we didn't have thing, time for such silliness as 4-H and FFA. But at that time, I did go ahead and go into 4-H and then into FFA. Uh, from then on, and to skip on a few years, in 77, uh, soon I got married. I had my, got my judge's license and got married all in the same year. 
Uh, also, she got her license later on down the road. Uh, and a little while there came along was Brian, our oldest son. He's 42. And our daughter, Brenda, that's 40. And they uh, they both showed exclusively. Back then, instead of groups, you were talking groups, we had uh, six class and four class. Brenda showed Hollands. She got her first Hollands in 84. Brian showed Satins. Uh, as we would travel home from a show, if one had beat the other one for best in show, it was not a peaceful ride home sometimes. <laughs> did, uh, did they feed off of each other so it made them work harder? Uh, no, not really. They helped one another. They loaded stuff. They, they would help each other. I think the biggest joke that we had in the rabbitry was when the kids were taking care of the rabbits and they were, I would say 12, 14 years old, something like that. Brenda came back in and she says, well, Brian did the feeding and I did the watering tonight. And, uh, she said to him, says, uh, well, what about that black Rex buck up there? Said, uh, what do you think of him? Well, it was dead. And what he says, what do you mean? And he says, it, he said, it's really a hard buck. And that's what really cracked <laughs> her up. It was frozen, I guess. I don't know. Best body condition <laughs> you ever felt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, so, you know, you've been around a long time. And, uh, you know, we've had a lot of listeners and a lot of um, people in rabbits that may, in rabbits and cavies that weren't around back then. So you got your judge's license very early on. What was it like to earn a judge license back then? What was different from earning an Airbnb judge license when you did versus um, how we do it today? Well, when I did it back then, they had supposedly a secret uh, committee that did it. Uh, everybody knew who the secret committee was. It was Fibber McGee, and usually is either Orrin or Harry Rice. And I can't remember who the third one was usually that worked with that. But anyway, that was usually the three that with that. Uh, Harry Fisher, Fisher's a KC that had Californians many, many years ago. He uh, he gave me my test, but the test, excuse me, at that time was an essay. And you basically had to express yourself similar to what the judges that were going to be doing your testing would accept as far as verbiage, uh, terminology, uh, through that. But you got to remember back then, when I took my test, I think the only thing we had in Brokens was English lops, French lops, and I think maybe Mitting lops, but I don't, memory doesn't serve me. So from there on, I saw all these broken species of the breeds, or varieties of the breeds, became a real factor. So... I it was all all the brokens went through, through there. Uh, for instance, the uh, broken standard Rex actually started out terminology of Dalmatian, but then they went on and called them broken in order to uniform everything better. So there were efforts back then to uniform the standard in terms of varieties of crossbreeds. Yes, there were. That's there cool. was, but see back then you've got to remember we could have and jumping into caves. We could have 200 to 250 cavies at a show, but you got to back up and remember, you've got Americans, Peruvians, and Abyssinians, and that was it. Three breeds. Three breeds shared 250 um, cavies in a show. That's correct. That's incredible. It is. I mean, and they were nice animals. 
but we didn't have the satinization. Uh, we then the only long haired uh, matter of fact, we had Peruvians for my wife did for a good while. Sue did. And she would have before the kids come along. Then after that, that we couldn't do that. But she had as many as 17 in full coat at a time. Oh, my gosh. So we actually interviewed Linda Lauks for the episode before this episode five. Mm-hmm. And yeah. she just had a, a really successful 2020 with a very famous uh, Peruvian that won 18 consecutive best in shows, which he had an incredible code. I don't know if you got to handle him or not, but what, what did Peruvians look like then compared to how maybe they are today? Um, lesser varieties, for one thing. Uh, what about their, were, were their coats different? Were they were they just as impressive or were they um, like English I'll, Angoras back in the day? They say if Betty tells stories like, oh, the English Angoras pre-blower look like this. But today they look like this. Were, were Peruvians different in their in their coat quality then? Yeah, I think the length was even more because we would have the standard box they would set on and the coat would actually flow off the box to the point that you couldn't see the box. Uh, red eye creams, reds tortoise shells and brokens were some of the more popular colors then and whites but uh yeah they were a little different i don't know the density was much different and yes i was able to hot uh, handle but i was at your show in reno and i did see that that animal and i did give it a best in show under me under one show and it's a beautiful beautiful animal uh, i think the texture and density was outstanding for it and probably the biggest kicker for the whole thing, and no one expected it, uh, for the best of the best, ended up being a cavy against all the rabbits. Yep, the first one in history. I That's what I understood, yes. Yeah, it was a pretty momentous occasion for cavies and for all of us there. It was it was really cool. Um, so back to the judge license back then. I know you, you have a rabbit and cavy judge license. Did that's you, correct. Did you get your cavy license at the same time, or did, you, did that come later? No, it came later. Uh, I... I actually had my rabbit license from 77 until, I think, 84, 85, I think, is when I got my KB license. Uh, First show I ever judged in rabbits were Checker Giants for Bob Wallace in Iowa. It was the Iowa State Checker Giant Association. I still have in here on my office wall, it uh, says the first dollar ever earned by the judge from Paydown. And there were, between pre-juniors and other animals there, in Checker Giants, my very first show, there was 263 or four animals. I cannot even imagine that. Were you intimidated? Not really. They were all (laughs) all friends that we'd all grown up together. Uh, It was interesting. I enjoyed it. Very cool. That's a, that's that, that that would I probably would um, I would probably would be running to the bathroom if I was Checker <laughs> Giants at two hundred and sixty for my very first show. But you are a braver man than I am. Um, so I hear that rabbit shows were different fifty years ago when you when when you were around. You know, describe a rabbit show or a KV show back then when you first started out. What was it like? Rabbit shows were single back then. Sometimes they would last two days. Well, they always usually lasted two days. Uh, a good example might have been at the Vandalia, which would have been the Central Eastern Missouri Rabbit Club. That's a good example. Uh, back then, we would have Coop Show for two days. We'd have probably, oh, if we had 175, we might be heavy on, or it might be 180 animals to go through. Because there weren't as many breeds in. you got to remember that, too. 
And what they would do, they would judge part of them on Saturday and get uh, quite a few of them done. Usually Friday night, we all came in and put our animals in the cages. Until 10 or 11 o'clock at night, we judged them ourselves between one another. Uh, then we, on Saturday, would be the regular show, and you would judge through. The ladies of the club would let them come up missing there later in the evening, and they went and cooked the food for the banquet. Now, when you're saying banquet, you're only talking 35, 40 people, maybe 50 with the club members. And they would have a nice little banquet or carry-in dinner type thing. Then Sunday morning, we'd take off judging again and usually get done by about noon and then everybody go back home. Now, there's two things that I don't think a lot of people knows back in that area and why it happened. There's a saying like the Mason-Dixon line, which was an industrial type line that went through the state of Illinois. In Missouri, it was somewhat fo followed by. Most people back then that were rabbit breeders, uh, Kellers and all them, they worked till noon on Saturday. Then they had time to come home, get their rabbits ready, and head out for the show. Uh, that's why you'll notice a lot of Sunday shows up in there. In the Bible Belt, down our way, there weren't Sunday shows, period. Southern Illinois, there were not Sunday shows. But it was the Industrial Revolution that pretty well dictated how the rabbit shows went back then. So did people uh, maximize on that? If you were in the Midwest during those days and you weren't going to church and you weren't working on Saturday, would you do a, sh a Saturday show um, in the South and then do a Sunday show in the North? Yeah, I've done that before. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll just tell you, we, at one time, we had five best in shows in one, two, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Missouri, Illinois. Yeah, that was it. What had happened, I'd sent rabbits with a friend of mine who had a show in Arkansas and in, well, it was Arkansas too, Arkansas and Tennessee with the Rex. Uh, I took one checker giant to Oklahoma City and judged that show. And I had Veston show with that checker. It was a very fortunate weekend. Uh, I went to, uh, my wife had went with one of the friends down to southern Missouri to a show, and we got best in show with a, a English spot there. Well, we came, I got home, she got home, and this was during the, we didn't have kids back then, and we left the carrier setting out by the end of the barn and got different rabbits and went to Illinois the next morning, real early, and showed up there. And I think it was either a New Zealand or English, I believe it's an English, gold English spot, that we won with under Orrin and Ivan up there. So I'll never try that again. <laughs> so it was three different rabbits across. Uh, yeah. It was, well, no, wait a minute. It was actually two different wrecks that we won with in the south. The Checker Giant, that was three. It was four different rabbits. Yeah. Incredible. And you've never had a weekend like that since? No, I'm not going to try it again either. <laughs> not, not, like I said, not, not crazy enough to try that again. So. No. I hear that rabbit shows back then were a little more uh, untamed, let's say. Did judges really smoke cigarettes at their judging tables? Oh, yeah. that, that I saw that happen. Uh, one year, we were at a show, and Pete Naylor is probably the guru of satins. Highly respected the man. And he and Alice, his wife, were showing satins at a show. And another judge was behind the table. Of course, they were smoking cigarettes, too, as they showed. 
and the judge behind the table burn a big hole right in the middle of the back of one of Alice's chin satins. Well, Alice had good chin satins. I mean, they they were best in show quality. She came over that table with a cigarette in her mouth going to knock the crap out of the judge on the other side of the table for burning the hole in the rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it all settled down. It all went the other way. So, oh, yeah, oh they sm- they smoked. Um, there were several of them chewed at the table. Some had snuff. Some There was even two or three older ladies. We were down in Louisiana, Arkansas. I don't remember. It was many, many years ago. And I was just showing down there then. I didn't have a judge's license. And they were doing snuff. So you. <laughs> and it wasn't looked down upon. That was that was pretty normal. That was just life. Wow. Pretty that crazy. A, oh, yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine it. No, not anymore at all. So in the last podcast, Bryony um, highlighted things that were different from the 1991 version of the standard of perfection. Mm-hmm. And I found it fascinating. She brought up um, how meat pens were judged. And it appears that in that standard, it was the last standard that this was in, that rabbits were actually butchered. Do you remember that? And maybe you could fill us in on some of that history. Yeah, I I do kind of remember a little bit about the butchering and about it. I don't remember actually being at a show it was, but you've got to remember Orrin Reynolds was a butcher by trade. Mm-hmm. Orrin Reynolds could shuck a, a, a fryer out in about 15 seconds. Oh, my God. He was fast. Uh, Orrin was called upon several times around Illinois State Convention, uh, different shows there in big meat pen areas in Illinois. I mean, that was just life there. And uh, they did do the butchering of them, yes. That's amazing. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, you know, we, we hear today that well, there's griping about the, the written text versus the, the meat rabbits. And, I mean, what better way to actually see whether or not you've got a, a meat rabbit underneath that pelt that well, adheres to a, a market, right, than to do that? Well, see, I judge other types of livestock, which you know, hogs and some cattle. And we do a lot of carcass class, classes on hogs. And basically, that was all we were doing back then. And that's still happening today in hog shows? Oh, yes. Yes, so our, like... sta- our state fair, the beef steers and the uh, hogs, actually, now our grand and reserve, we go through the auction, then they're slaughtered, and they go on the rail then to be judged again. Uh, there's actually carcass judging competition for our FFA kids and that. And we and we actually have competition like that that's away with poultry and other meats uh, at FFA contests, too, here in the state of Missouri. Pretty cool. Um, so I know you talked about cigarettes burning uh, the holes in a, in a chin satin coat from a judge. What other uh, wild story might you have from the untamed untamed uh, years back on the wild air Bay frontier that you could share with us from a show? Well, I can't tell you the exact years, but at one time... We quit picking best in shows because the old boys were going out back and dueling it out after. What do you mean dueling it out? They just had a fist fight over who won. That was after best in show. So then yes. they just squelched doing best in show, period. So for a period of time. Then, it's as you know, but in our uh, rules and regulations now, you have to pick a best in show and to complete your show. But it, I can't tell you what years it was. Uh who was even involved in it. it? It was actually before my time, but there was, uh, I didn't come into the existence of showing 71, but around that time, I'd say late sixties was when they were having some conflicts. Yes. And then guys would, would legit get out back, 
fist in the air and, and duke it out. That's true. That's, That's crazy. True. Probably one of the most interesting things as you're we're talking this things that happened was the year that Doris Leibel came in as her first woman judge. And uh, she was she came from uh, I believe she was either Minnesota. She was a Dutch judge. Uh, Bryony was she Wisconsin or Minnesota? Oh, I don't remember. She was well before my time, but I remember hearing stories about her. She was an excellent judge. And she was the first female licensed ARBA judge? To my knowledge, it was, yes. And I I worked under her for my license. And so she she must have been really good. At a little show in Tonganoxie, Kansas. Wow. Well, talk about that for a second. You know, uh, Brian and I talked in a previous episode about, you know, the impact and power of women today in the ARBA. And we can't imagine our hobby without those those powerful female voices how were women perceived back then as breeders i mean i know you mentioned that the show would get to a point where the women would leave and, and cook you know how were they perceived and were they were they breeding rabbits and were they successful and how were they they taken as a whole amongst the the culture back then probably before doris got her license you saw a lot it was a men's world and i think a lot of that was because it was labor intensive uh, a lot of it was uh, more meat rabbits. We didn't have the fancy rabbits then. The fanciest rabbits we had then was English Spots and Dutch, basically. And I don't, I guess English Angoras probably, but you got to remember the English Angoras were weavers and spinners and that type of situation for them and through. But what I remember the most of was the Dutch and the English Spots. Now, I saw uh, a lot of women raising English spots, yes. I saw a lot of them raising Dutch back then. Because in Springfield, Missouri in 1960, which was before my time again, but I've got a few records from back from then, and I have visited with people there, the hot spot of the English spot club was in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, the Cole family was in charge. They were secretary-treasurer of the English Spot Club back then. It was a large, large club back then. Even down in Springfield, there was a lot of people raised spots. And you it wasn't unusual for to go to local shows at times, and there could be 80, 90 spots at a show. And and a, a breed dominated by, by female exhibitors? Not necessarily. I think it was more of a shared type situation there. Uh, they were smaller rabbits, so they were carrying them, you know, more. Uh, you didn't see that many New Zealand breeders that were women back then. Uh, we did have a lot of Californian people when they came on board that actually raised them and did too. Now, the regular wrecks, see, back back years ago, they had different types. Now, the other breed that I do remember them working with a lot was the Havanas. But then there was a heavyweight Havana, and there was a lighter weight Havana there in the late 60s. What did that mean? It mean it means you had the same fur and same type rabbit. They were shown as two different breeds. And they were, they're in the, stand, the older standards. I don't know when that was taken out. I can't tell you that offhand. But they were, I want to say, probably a five-pound top animal in the, uh, the medium. And then in the large, they went on up to seven, eight pounds, I'd say. Not as big as a New Zealand. So then when Best in Show came around, did, did those versions, those light and heavyweight versions of the Havana compete on the Best in Show table, or was the best overall Havana chosen amongst them? 
No, I, I, I believe they all competed on the table together. I think you, you as two different breeds because there was also a Havana Rex too. And what was that like? It was a, it was a Rex rabbit. And most of them were chocolate. Some of them were black. Now, I don't know if that was a pre, pre, uh, thing of the regular Rex or not. I'm not really sure about that. I can't remember that part. Hmm. That's really interesting. And both Rex and Havana's, they're pretty old breeds. So, right. Maybe the maybe the Rex Havana was a precursor to the Mini Rex. No, uh, I helped her with the Mini Rex getting those started and everything through. What Who was that? Uh, I helped uh, all from Texas. Uh, was it Mona Berryhill? Yeah, Mona. What happened? Mona and I were at the convention in, I believe, Florida. Yeah, Florida, and there was a little pair of black Rex, uh, Mini Rex. Well, they're called Dwarf Rex. It was in a raffle. And I'm not sure what, but we both bought tickets for it. And we had made a, we had decided that if whoever one of us won it, we were going to share with one another. So we did. Anyway, she ended up winning, which probably she went farther with them than I would have. But she bred them into her standard caster wrecks. Mona and Ken were known for their huge, or not huge, but nice, big boned, nice size caster wrecks. They were beautiful rabbits. She bred those into those. I think she lost a little buck, maybe. And they were all black, both black, but used them in there. And she did some line breeding and came back to me and got a hold of a couple lynx does that I thought were going to be underweight, which I'm sure they were, and bred into them, too. So, basically, casters and opals started out there. <coughs> Several times during the length of the... Uh, as the mini rex evolved, uh, we we couldn't get seem to get the blacks, uh, you know, passed. They just it seemed like there's white spots in them, something all the time. But they got got better through there. Uh, Mona was very precise in everything she did. So when she went to the standards committee, she had a notebook on each variety, and whoever was presenting them, she had made that notebook up and had it tabbed. And everything in order. Uh, I guess I was a carrier of the notebooks and the presenter of the notebooks out to them. So and Mona and I would go. The biggest, busiest day we had was in 1989 at Madison. There was, I think, I, I can't remember the number we had. I don't remember if it was nine or 11 varieties presented that day. And I think everything got passed. I remember the Reds did. Uh, we had several different varieties that got passed within the, the realm of that. Otters weren't a thing right then. And uh, we, uh, the Mini Rex breed in 89 actually got accepted. And in some of the old DR I've got here and stuff, we have uh, my son who's 41 now, he was about 8 or 9, and I are there at that celebration, which was quite interesting. And you mentioned casters were one of the first varieties used by Mona Berryhill, the mm -hmm. developer of the, the Minirex breed here in the United States. It probably is reason why Minirex, when they won the first conventions back-to-back -back by the Lassens in Southern California, they were casters. They, they were a dominant variety in that breed, weren't they? Yeah, the reason being is a lot of people didn't work with the blacks too much. They were being presented prior to the casters taking best in show. And brokens uh, weren't around at all. You know, I don't think so. I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember when we passed the Brokens. I, I, for some reason, I don't remember that. 
but they but they probably weren't the quality that we see today. I mean, broken is that that dominant variety that that comes no, out of that no, pretty the, the depth wasn't there or any of that. And I know it took us about four or five years, four years, I believe, to ever get the otters passed because there was always issues every time. I was on the Mini Rex Standards Committee at that time. We would go through them, and it, it would be something that we just didn't put them up there because they'd be the white toenails or a missing toenail. Or we had at one, I think, one time in uh, Washington, Pallup, Washington, uh, I believe we had. Uh, one black doe, otter doe, that was like close to six pounds. So that wasn't going to work for sure. <laughs> Probably not. Um, you know, we, you're talking about the evolution of, of rabbit breeds, uh, you know, in between the lines here. And how back then, when you started out, they were big six-class breeds. And um, today, obviously, we, we have a lot more four-class breeds. What breeds do you think revolutionized the, the shift in the ARBA from six-class breeds to four-class breeds? I think uh, the Netherland Dwarf, for one, that was a, a big one. Daryl Bramall lived in Iowa. There was a Mr. Miller in southern Iowa, and I lived in Missouri. And I was actually at home on the farm at that time. And Daryl and I and he, Mr. Miller, we would go up to around Independence, Missouri, where they had a show every year. And in the fall of the year of October, we would bring what we had extra, and we'd all shift around. Now, you got to remember, this was in 67, 60, I guess 68 or 69, maybe, that we, I wasn't, I don't think I was in the ARB member then, but I was messing with the dwarfs. And Daryl was afraid of fires. And the fires <coughs> in the barns of losing, he had imported quite a bit of stuff from England. And uh, Bob Pettit had helped him get them. He is a big pigeon man there in Iowa. So... We would divide them all up. Mr. Miller had the, uh, let's see what he had. He had the Hemis. Daryl always kept the shaded varieties a lot. And I ended up with the Silver Martins and the Roos a lot. And then we would go from there. In 72, I was elected. I think 71, we started a club. It might have been 69 in there. But at 72, I was one of the first directors of the uh, Nettleton Dwarf Rabbit Club. And they, I've got some of the first ribbons we gave out and stuff like that which is quite interesting, but they were a nice little rabbit back then, but they didn't have the type, they didn't have the bone structure either. If you put one of those dwarfs side by side with a dwarf today, what would be the biggest difference? Uh, substance of the ear, width probably between the eye, it was pretty good, but not like we've got today. Uh, not There was not quite, we didn't pose them maybe quite like we do today, uh, we had them somewhat, but the top lines are much better today. There's a lot more muscle on that rabbit today than there was before. The colors are good. Uh, the only thing that I'm just so amazed by is the otters, how many of those we sent to the pet shop before that color was ever accepted. Wow. We had a lot, of, we had a lot of them. And how, how do you see otters today in Netherland Dwarfs? I, I think the type is good. But even in my own barn, I've got two different lines of otters that's got very intense tan patterning, and then I've got some that aren't so intense. And do you think those colors, or do they go hand in hand with some of the type faults? Or there are those ones with more of the, the higher tan factor better in some regards when it comes to type or 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 ear or or fur? Do you see color differences that are consistent with other traits in the in the breed? 
Not totally, but I yeah, I could I wouldn't argue that point, but it'd be somewhat, yes. Cool. Well, you talked about one of those conventions early on. That was uh, back in Florida when you and Mona Berryhill were duking out at the raffle for those dwarf wrecks or what we call mini wrecks today. Mm -hmm. What was it like uh, at your first convention? Where was it? And how did it compare to an ARBA convention today? My first convention I went to was Houston, Texas. And we were in a, all the animals were cooped in a car garage, or I shouldn't say car garage, a uh, a parking garage by the hotel. Uh, it was a really a good show, nice show. I think one of the things I remember about it most was that was the first time that we'd ever seen, I guess that was eight, no, that was 70, it was 77, so I'm, that was Houston, one of the Houston shows. And back then they had one little dwarf lop displayed. And... I just fell in love with that little sucker. He was so pretty. But back then, $250 was a lot for an, a breed not known. Uh, he was very refined in bone now that I think about him back. But he was he spiked the entrance of the Holland Lock Club and the Hollands themselves. Well, Brandy, that was such a great interview with Gene. He's been doing this since the late 60s, longer than both you and I, maybe even combined, and certainly longer than... A lot of people in our industry as Airbnb judge number 409. And what's really interesting is he was able to recognize the shift that, that happened from our six class or, or bigger meat style rabbits to what we see now, which are the, are the fancy rabbits. So, you know, he was there with Daryl Bramhall during the importation of some of the first Netherland dwarfs. And then he talks about the dwarf lop he saw, which of course led to the development of the Holland lop. And then really interestingly, and, and a fun little story that he shared was that that time at the convention where he and Mona Berryhill, of course, who later created the mini Rex, were going at bat for the dwarf Rex that happened to be in a raffle at a convention. So, and here we are years later with Netherland Dwarfs, Holland Lops, mini Rex really being at the top of our game in the current ARBA. So, Bryony, what do you have on the, on the uh, education side of this podcast? Well, considering that the National Mini Rex Show is coming up here um, just next weekend, and you're going to get the privilege of judging it, I thought I'd talk about a little bit of history on Mini Rex. They were accepted in 1988, as presented by Mona Berryhill. Um, the first standard that they appeared in, in the first printing, was a 1991 to 95 standard. And I'll read you the varieties, and clearly we've added quite a few and some of our most popular since that uh, first introduction. In 91, they were accepted in blue, Californian, that was both black and blue, castor, chinchilla, lynx, opal, red, seal, tortoise, white, and broken group. So no black, no otter, uh, no shadeds. Um, lots of varieties have come in and um, really helped to make this one of the most popular breeds in the country. You have people who are very competitive raising the varieties that are always at the top, you know, the brokens, the blacks, the otters, the whites. Um, you have people who specialize and do very well in some of these um, lesser known varieties that have smaller numbers, but it still gives them um, a niche really in the hobby to find something that they just enjoy and work to improve it and, you know, maybe be at the top of their game. I did pull a couple of old domestic rabbits um, to look and see who was winning mini Rex back at the time. And there's some fun little stories there, too. In 1992, Best to Breed and Open was won by Jerry Armstrong of Texas. 
And for anyone who still shows mini recs, they probably know Jerry Armstrong. He's a character. He's been a promoter of the breed since the beginning. And I remember hearing stories that um, he'd won with a broken buck. And Jerry being Jerry, just let all sorts of people breed to this rabbit for the joy of promoting the breed. And apparently this really helped advance the breed along, helped a lot of people's herds to move forward. The next year in 1993, Best of Breed was won by Ann and Lou Lassen of California. That's a familiar name to those of you who have looked through the Best in Show listing because they also won the next two years in convention in 1994 and 1995. And in both those years, they won Best in Show with two different caster senior does. Um, Still quite a feat by then. They were already a popular breed with lots of breeders. And I don't know that anyone has since won that many consecutive best of breeds in convention with mini Rex. It's definitely one of our most competitive breeds. You bring up some great points about mini Rex and uh, varieties, how they give like a, like a, a niche sort of interest uh, in those varieties to people that you know, want to specialize them. And I think that maybe more than any other breed, um, you see breeders that are specializing in maybe one or two varieties that may not be popular varieties for winning best of breed, but certainly are excellent in their quality uh, in those barns where the, where the focus is. And then, of course, they're also a breed that can win best in show and, and certainly do. I can't even imagine being <laughs> being the Lassens back in the 90s and winning best in show two years in a row at the convention. And there's still today this breed that that is a top contender when it comes to best in show, whether it's at a convention or at the local level. So um they are a, a pretty in, incredible breed, and we got to hear tonight about their very start with with Gene and uh, some of his like anecdotal uh, little tidbits on on where he was when the mini rex was developed. So that's really some cool education and and a contrast to the standard that you, that you've put a lot of effort into, which is our current one, which mini rex have twenty varieties now and and classified by groups, which was uh, an advent as of January first of this year. And um, I have to admit that I like it, but it took me a little bit like, oh, I got to do that now when I when I judge the the Minirex. And I'm, of course, looking forward to judging the Minirex National Show uh, next weekend in Kansas. Yeah, it's a little bit of a shift. Um, it's done like Netherland Dwarfs, where the rabbits are judged by a variety and then a best of group is chosen, which I think is a great move for several reasons. Um, first of all, it does give those breeders who have maybe some of those varieties that aren't as popular, it gives them an extra um, option to compete. It gives them an extra chance to maybe get some legs. You know, say, for example, you know, you raise an opal, but you're the only one in the area. Well, now maybe you can win a group leg against the casters, the lynx, the chinchillas, um, you know, and then it just cuts down the number of animals you have on the table at the end of the day. So you have 12 animals maximum and nobody's feelings have to be hurt by dismissing animals. Um, so it just makes a day move a lot more smoothly. I like this process. I would say the only downside is that it's sometimes hard to find riders because people who aren't familiar with the breed are a little intimidated by that. Um, but to anyone who's thinking about it, uh, don't be intimidated. The judges and the breeders will help walk you through the order of the varieties because they they really do appreciate that help. And they're more than willing to kind of coach you along till you get the hang of it. Absolutely. I'm sure you've heard writers over the years um, when you're kind of digging through the audience for someone to write for Netherland Dwarfs. And they go, oh, well, I don't raise Netherland Dwarfs. That's so confusing to have all those groups. But once, you know, within within moments, it's it's really not that hard. And the judges, of course, are going to help there, be there to help and and guide those writers along. And I have to say that from a from an efficiency side, I absolutely love having the groups because as you just said, the most you'll have on the table when you judge best of, best of breed for the Minirax is 12. You've got a best and opposite of each of the, the six groups and it makes it so much more efficient. And it takes out that awkwardness of judging. And we've all been there where, you know, maybe the, let's use Lynx as, as an example. The, the Lynx breeder takes their, their best of variety off and they go, they look at you and they go, 
does it have to come back for best of breed? <laughs> well, let's be honest. Actually, it does not. And, you know, it's that awkwardness that is now doesn't, it's defunct because, you know, they're going to compete in the Agouti group or, you know, a tort will compete in the Shady group. And it definitely gives those breeders a nod and recognition and a capability of, of getting a, an extra, you know, like an extra look or a leg at that point uh, for their group. So that was a great point. Yeah, hopefully it'll contribute to more advancement in the breed and maybe encourage some more people to jump in with those colors that maybe don't have as many numbers there and kind of start to make their own mark there. Heck yeah. Yeah, they're a breed for everyone. Well, I think that concludes our episode this week. Bryony, do you have anything else to add? Um, just to tell everybody to keep talking rabbits and cavies. Keep talking, keep, keep talking rabbits and cavies. And if you haven't already, check out Rabbitry on Facebook, The Rabbitry. And that's going to be our hub from now on when it comes to our episodes and our podcasts. So every week we will post a link to um, the podcast that is up and coming for that week and, and have some chat about maybe what's up to coming or up and coming. So please, everyone, uh, look up The Rabbitry on Facebook, follow it, like it, and stay tuned for more episodes. And as Bryony said, don't forget to uh, talk rabbits and talk cavies. Have a great evening wherever you are. See you next time. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.